Mary Toft had delivered a litter of rabbits. That was the news that reached the court of King George I in 1726. Obstetrician John Howard arrived at Toft's bedside in September, where he was presented with several animal parts, ostensibly from the supernatural womb. In October, she delivered nine dead baby rabbits, prompting Howard to write a letter to England's greatest doctors and scientists, as well as the king's secretary. Nathaniel St. Andre, the king's Swiss surgeon anatomist, was sent to investigate. Toft greeted his arrival in November by delivering her 15th dead rabbit in his presence. St. Andre bought the story and took some of the rabbit specimens back to London to show the king. Despite a chorus of doubt from other physicians and indisputable physical evidence from dissection of the rabbits, both Howard and St. Andre continued to support Toft's story. It seems Howard, taken in by the scam at first, was doubling down as the stakes were raised, hoping his bluff would be saved by a real miracle. St. Andre, on the other hand, seems to have made his stand on maternal impression, an idea popular at the time. The theory proposed that an emotional stimulus experienced by a pregnant woman, Toft had dreams of rabbits, could influence the development of the fetus. Howard and St. Andre damaged the reputation of physicians, but there have been worse. Dr. Pepper, for example, is disgusting. Plenty of good docs, of course, and not necessarily physicians. Dr. Manhattan, the Smurfy Blue God, Dr. Disrespect, the Gaming Personality, the Doc of the Bay by Otis Redding. So, where on the spectrum lies copper with its doctorate of philosophy and economics? In part two of episode 41, Jeff Snyder weighs the calm supply and demand fundamentals versus the Howard and St. Andre-like narrative that the good ship Copper Pop, fueled by Fed QE affinity inflation, has achieved escape velocity, entered the Tesla-osphere, and is on its way to the Bitcoin star. But first, the late 1990s Japanese government bond row and its lessons for today. Inflation, inflation, runaway inflation, runaway inflation. It seems to be, what, the topic of the day when you look at financial markets, everything seems to be aligning towards a bond route, a U.S. Treasury bond route. And in fact, U.S. Treasury yields have seemingly come unmoored, or have they? We're going to talk to Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Uh, Jeff, pleasure to see you again. Welcome to the new year. Yeah, happy new year to you, Emil. I was just talking to the microphone, my setup here. The camera's down there. Okay, now I'm talking to you. All right, Jeff, we're on episode 41, and I've got it kicked off to a great start already. Episode 41. Episode 5 was the uh, episode where we discussed modern myths like Kaiser Sose and Bond Kings. And Bond Kings is shorthand that you often raise that uh, U.S. Treasury yields have nowhere to go but up, that inflation is going to send that that treasury security up because what because of money printing from the federal government from the central bank and recently that seems to be maybe what's happening it seems like there's a an alignment of the planets that that's where we're heading 
so, Jeff, let's discuss the article where you introduce us to what a real bond route will look like. Yeah, and I think, you know, the shorthand for bond kings is that they're always saying interest rates have, always, have nowhere to go what up. It doesn't matter where we are or where anything is. That's always the message. And the lower interest rates go, the more forcefully they say they have nowhere to go but up, which, I mean, that makes kind of a, a bit of a sense, right? You know, eventually these, this thing has to turn around. And in the vernacular, they use the, uh, the 30 or 40 year treasury market or treasury bull market must end at some point. And that's true. But what is it that drives treasury yields? As you pointed out, Emil, inflation is, a one, is one component of it. But really, it's inflation as the corroboration that the real, the real economy underlying everything is behaving the way we want it to. We, want it to we, don't, we don't want consumer prices to go up because consumer prices to go up. What we want is to see that to check our assumptions. We say, okay, corporations have purchasing power because things are going well. They can raise prices, which tells us across a broad swath of the economy, things are going in the right direction. There's opportunity in real, real economic projects. And when that situation arises, who the hell wants to own safe instruments, especially safe instruments that are yielding you 1% or less? I mean, you don't want those things. So the underlying thesis of the bond kings, this interest rates have nowhere to go but up, is a sound one, except for the one caveat. The one caveat is the real economy, you know, the big one, the big cheese. Is it really changed? And that's really what you need to ask yourself. If we're going to get into a bond route situation, has something meaningfully changed in the economy? And what they come back, what we come back with time and again is, well, no, but a government has done something new or a central bank has done something new. Not understanding that central banks and government are responding to the same thing that the bond market is pricing in terms of low interest rates. So those two things are always together. It's not the size of the stimulus. It's not the central bank coming up with a new form of QE that's going to do it. What changes us and gets us out of this quote-unquote bull market is when the real economy itself finally climbs out of its rut and says, yes, we're going to start growing again. We're going to start doing things like they used to be done. That's when you'll see a real bond drop. But there are, there are times, you know, because markets don't go in a straight line, there are short-term periods where it looks like, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe we'll give the government the benefit of the doubt. And as I wrote in the article that you're, uh, that you're uh, um, highlighting here, Emil, we, there was a big bond route in 1998 and 1999 in Japan. For all, I mean, if you, you, you go back and review the situation, it sounds so eerily familiar to today. It seems like everything lines up exactly in that way. That's right. I'm glad you raised that entire point. It's not, and it's a, it's a topic we've discussed previously. When we're in a normal economic situation, not a depression, let's say, then maybe the federal government or the central government for our friends in Europe or uh, Japan, if they do something, if they stimulate the economy, or if the central bank does something, then we'll rebound. And it's, this is, I'm referring to the plucking model of Milton Friedman, but we're not in a normal situation. We need more than just a one-time passing stimulus. So. Jeff, you bring up a depression that's already been in place since the 90s, and that's Japan. And you mentioned the 1997-1998 time period. And give us a little bit of context around what was happening at that time. But Jeff, to be frank with you, even though your name is Jeff and it's not fair to be frank to you, uh, I looked at that graph. I didn't even see it because I pulled the data on a monthly basis. 
And I didn't even see the bound grass, so I'm spoiling it. We're going to, it's not really in the bigger picture. It's not really a huge bondra. But, you know, I thought at first that you had made a mistake, and I thought you were referring to 87 to 88. That's a bondra. But go ahead, tell us. Yeah, no, you're 90s. exactly right. And that's, you know, but at the time, it seemed like a, this massive thing. And of course, given the context of where we are today, what happened in 97 and, or 98 and 99 was, I mean, it's epic compared to what's going on now because, okay, interest rates, JGB, Jap, Japan, uh, yields on Japanese government bonds had been falling throughout the 90s. And the reason was because, as we said, the, the Japanese economy failed to recover time and again. There was the big bubble collapse, massive recession earlier in the decade. And then suddenly, wait a minute, no matter what the Japanese government did, no matter what the Bank of Japan did, growth was not coming back. So as this situation changed from one of Japan Inc. being the envy of all the world to what the hell's going on in Japan, it can't ever, it can't even seem to recover. Bond yields fall because you want to own safe and liquid instruments during periods of high, high economic uncertainty, financial uncertainty too. As we as we moved into 1997, what became known as the Asian flu or the Asian financial crisis, you have this, of course financial monetary element to go along with Japan's depression, and bond yields fell even further. The yield on the 10-year uh, Japanese government bond, I believe, got down to around 79, 78 basis points, something like that. Again, sounds very familiar. And this was October of 1998, during the worst of the crisis. You know, Russian, the Russian devaluation, you had uh, all across Asia, all sorts of things LTCM going wrong. LTCM in September yeah, was just rescued. <laughs> Exactly. So, I mean, this was a real, this was a real deal here. And that's why uh, interest bond yields fell. Now, as, you know, Japan was sinking into this lost decade of depression, the central government and the central bank were not sitting on their hands. They had been doing stimulus earlier in the decade. And as the 97, 98 uh, um, recession showed up in Japan, they, the central government decided, hey, we're going to go nuts here. We're going to do real massive stimulus because we got to get out of this rut. This, this is really bad. And so what happened in April of 98 is they un unveiled, I believe it was a 17 trillion yen stimulus package that basically kind of didn't really do much because the Asian financial crisis kept going, kept getting worse. But in November of 1998, the government went up to it and they did what was at that time one of the biggest fiscal stimulus package, if not the largest fiscal stimulus package ever conceived in modern history. It was about 24 trillion yen. And when that was announced, they kept upsizing it up. In, in the period before the announcement. So when they finally announced it and they came out with this 24 trillion yen number, it was like shocking. It was this massive thing. And, you know, for a time people thought, well, geez, maybe this will do it. Maybe this will get Japan out of its rut. We'll get out of this, uh, this negative environment. We'll get moved. We'll get, we'll get the economy moving again. And it'll end up being inflationary because not only will, do we have this massive stimulus combined, I mean, you're talking about almost 40 trillion yen just in 1998 alone. We also see signs in November of 98 of the economy rebounding on its own, getting past the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the downturn associated with the Asian financial crisis. So, I mean, and then you have the central bank, you have the Bank of Japan um, with its ultra low interest rate policy, which was a world first that that time too. So it seems like everything was going in favor for it. You have the government finally putting its foot down saying, this will not stand any longer. We're going to do whatever it takes to get us out of this. And so from 19, November, I think it was November 16th or 17th, somewhere around there in 1998, until February 5th, the yield on the 10-year JGB went from around 90 basis points where it had been to upwards of 243, or 2.43%. That was a bond route. 
And it, from the context of where they were, ultra low, record low yields in October of 98 to February of 99, where they skyrocketed upward. So that was, hey, the bond market saying, maybe this will work. And we're saying, well, take a look at what's happening in the United States, where we're just crossing 1%. And we would expect to see much more, much more quickly if it signaled that the economy was really turning around. Jeff, I or even if, the, even if the market thought this was a really plausible scenario, right? Exactly. As you're pointing out, right, the treasury yes. market has gone up, what, about 20-some basis points over since November? So two months, 20 basis points were in Japan. You had three months, 150. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, it's not just the, the, the size of the move. It's the slope. It's the degree, the angle of extent. I mean, it was a real rip-roaring bond route at that time. You know what my favorite part of the story is? Is that uh, like we often see in the United States, when some big central bank announcement is taking place, the markets sell the news. And do you know what happened? So on February 5th, was it that it reached the height? Is that right? Yep. February 5th, which was a specific date. And I know exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> well, I have it here as February 12th as being the day that the Bank of Japan announced ZERP. Am I off by a week or? No, you're, the, you're exactly in the right area. And the, there was, I mean, the whispers of ZERP have come out before. Because, you know, central banks don't make announcements. There's always pre-announcements and, in, you know, uh, preparing the battlefield for what happened. But you're right. Early February of, two, of 1999, that was when they got to the zero interest rate policy. Which you would think would have been incredibly stimulative and it would have added even more rocket fuel to the rocket. It would have been the second stage booster. We should have taken off. But I guess this is the story that we're trying to tell people is uh, no, in the first, no. Right. In the first quarter of 1999, it became very obvious that nothing had changed. You just look at GDP. GDP was significantly negative in the first quarter of 1999, which basically blew the doors off the story that Japan was climbing out of its rut. It was confirmation of the opposite. It, no, nothing. Massive fiscal stimulus, massive central bank. And here's the Bank of Japan coming in saying, oh, crap, we need to do even more. The and it's just, no, go ahead. No, it's, I was going to say, it's just, it's, it's, it completely erased every, every, you know, if the JGB market was saying in, in late, of, late 98, we'll give these guys a chance, by February 1999, it was clear that, no, there was no reason to have done that. And of course, you can hear the echoes of today. Fiscal stimulus is coming uh, in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, Massive, everywhere. Huge, unbelievably large. And the point you made in your article, oh my gosh, I just realized, Jeff, I have never even introduced what it is. They've gone too far, or have they? That is the headline. You posted it at Mahamba Partners on January 6, 2021. And Jeff, in that article, you made the point that the Japanese government, by issuing this insane amount of government debt did a big favor to the bond market and to lenders because now they could lend money to the safest entity in a depression. And I wonder if that's what we're going to see when we see a huge splurge in, uh, you know, in treasuries. It seems to be safer to lend money to this person who's very unlikely to default as opposed to the private economy. That's what we've seen this year. That's exactly what explains how yields got as low as they were, because 
you're exactly right. Just like Japan, where you know issuing government debt was. I mean, that's the government. The, the central government of Japan didn't care about the bond market. They were just doing what their Keynesian economists told them to do. We need to stimulate ourselves out of this economic economic problem. When the market was saying. We, as you just pointed out, Emil, we just we just want safe liquid assets. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to hold on, and, and you know, we don't. There's too much risk in the real economy because it's not moving. And so the Japanese government issued tons of debt, and the Japanese banking system, in particular, said, "I'll buy it. I want it." You know, outside of these specific periods where maybe we say, "Well, inflation might be coming, things getting better," and then, oh no, there's no inflation. And that's another point. I mean, you look at the Japanese CPI. Not only did it not turn positive, it was negative throughout this entire time. So this massive fiscal stimulus, this massive monetary policy stimulus, outside of those three months in the Japanese government bond market, nothing had changed. In fact, Japan stayed uh, well within its own rut. Nothing, nothing, no inflation, no, no even hint of inflation anywhere. Jeff, you've often been called the Aesop of the euro dollar. And you've just told us the uh, the story of the frog and that wanted a king. It's a classic. Uh, but what would be the fable? I think we've gotten to it, but maybe I haven't. Maybe I haven't read. Like bigger picture, what is the fable of this article? It's really about permanent shocks, right? We talked about unit roots before. We've gone over these. Things. It's really what happens. It's a difference between an L-shaped recovery and a V-shaped recovery. A V-shaped recovery, as you referred to earlier, Milton Friedman's plucking model. Some use the, the neutral interest or natural interest rate theory. Whatever it is, it basically says that under normal conditions, when you have a recession, you're going to have a recovery. There's always symmetry involved because a recession is nothing more than a temporary deviation from the, the trend line. And the trend line doesn't change. The trend line is what the trend line is. It's determined by factors outside of these macroeconomic situations. So if we have a recession, we expect to recover. And therefore, the government's job in those situations is merely to just try to make it as, as, most, uh, as, as least bad as possible. You know, this, the point of stimulus isn't to change the trend line in, in the economy. It's to reduce the pain and, and suffering that the uh, recession brings about. But it's a very different situation where you go into a permanent shock, where the trend line itself has changed, or we can never get seen to get back to the trend line from before. What that means is very different circuit. It doesn't matter how much the government spends. It doesn't matter how much central banks do because they cannot change the situation. It's a permanent shock. And in the, situ in the, in the uh, circumstances of Japan in the 90s and even going forward to today, what you see is exactly that. The time and again, what happens is – the government grows at the expense of the real economy. In fact, the real economy doesn't grow at all. It's just we keep adding more government spending, more government spending, and it actually it actually hinders the re any kind of uh, natural recovery processes because you're doing things the recovery doesn't need to have done. You know, the old joke in Japan was that all this fiscal stimulus had led to every river being paved over on its every river bank being paved over. There's there's parks everywhere. You know, medium sized cities have three world class museums. Every single one. It's you waste all of this government activity or all this uh, economic activity trying to just make a recovery or make a recession that much more comfortable when in fact it's not a recession. And that's really the fable. It's it's this idea of we need to pay attention to the to the to uh, possible permanent shocks. That's right. One of the quotes here from the article here is quote in post money central bank lore. All that's required is shock and awe, a play upon people's expectations. And I urge people to read the article. That whole paragraph there is fantastic. 
let me just focus in on post money. What we need to break out of this situation that we've been in for at least 13 years, Japan 30, is money. We need to be, we need someone to be creating money. And Jeff, have you noticed, have you heard how so many different countries are instituting, implementing this new policy of guaranteed bank credit. So guaranteed, they guarantee the loans that the banks would extend. And it's mixed. Some results are mixed. Like in the United States, there's two big programs, the Main Street Lending Program, not successful. Uh, the Paycheck Protection Act, or Protection Program, that one was successful. In other countries, it's mixed. It's good, bad. Do you think that there's a possibility that this is kind of a new possibility whereby government guarantees bank lending i think that's one of the uh one of the possibilities of you know what they're going to consider what official sectors around the world are absolutely going to consider because everything they've done up to this point hasn't worked and so it's it's quite natural to start to start to start looking for different kinds of answers but they're all the same kinds of answers there's not this is not a categorical change in thinking the categorical change in thinking is not well we need to guarantee the bank's bank lending program it's we need to figure out why banks won't do this on their own. That's what the issue is. It's, you know, I hate to go back and use a Keynesian term, but it's animal spirits. Where, where are the animal spirits? And the government doing more about, uh, uh, you know, giving banks uh, a much safer outlet for what they want to do will only continue to reward that kind of behavior. You know, it's, it's a, you only want you know, government bonds that are safe and liquid, then I'm going to issue more government bonds and reward these, this, incentivize this behavior toward the risk aversion. We need to stop and think about why are, why are banks and even certain sectors of the non-bank private economy so risk averse and why are they always so risk averse? I know we say that and people think, what are you talking about? Stock markets and through the moon. You know, there's, there's a corporate credit bubble, junk bonds are, you know, all this other stuff. There has been a, a nothing more than risk aversion. The banking system has retreated. We show this in all our statistics and all the, all the, you know, all the numbers that we have available. The reality is that it's that the banking system, the real economy in particular, has been extremely risk averse, and it, and it does it's, it does so in ways it doesn't immediately show up on the news or in data or anything else. You think about, especially this year, how small businesses have suffered. So yes, stock stock prices of the largest corporations are going through the moon because corporations don't have the same problems that the rest of the economy has. And so we have this risk-averse situation where nobody stops and thinks, well, why are they being risk-averse? And one of the reasons is, and I would argue the key reason is, we don't have a stable financial and monetary system. And stable doesn't mean, oh, the central bank needs to act here or there or do something different. It kind of means that we need no central bank at all. We don't need them to keep making it worse. And that's really what we're talking about is uh, no matter, it, these, these kinds of things can go on, these permanent shocks can go on for a very, very long time. And that's really why we keep going back to Japan. And most people, you know, a lot of people say, well, why do you look at Japan? Japan's all about, you know, it's just Japanese factors alone. It has no bearing on what's going on in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world, except that when you take an honest look at the situation over the last dozen years, don't we all look like we're following along in the Japanese model? It really, I mean, it's not, Japan was Japan isn't an isolated case. It was just the first case. Jeff, am I correct in that you don't have an economics doctorate, and that if you were 
offered an honorary economics doctorate, you wouldn't accept it. Yeah, that's probably true. Never really thought about it, but now that you now that you mentioned it, I probably wouldn't want it. <laughs> well, I I set you up. It's a trap, Jeff, because okay. you know who does have an economics doctorate? Copper. And in part two of episode forty-one, we're going to talk about copper. Who might be disagreeing with you? But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, are you confused by the financial press? Are the pretty people on Bloomberg speaking in paradox? Are the esteemed pages of The Economist written in contradiction? Then the new Eurodollar Enterprises Dictionary of Economics is for you. Yes, from Abemoronics to Zerp. Zero interesting, reasonable policies confidently leaf through your folio to define Yellenism, Powellution, and green spam. Money, a noun, is defined as a blessing that is of no advantage to us, excepting when we part with it. What is a synonym for wealth? Impunity. What is the compound word for making economics erotic? Bernanke Panky. The new Eurodollar Enterprises Dictionary of Economics. New from Eurodollar Enterprises. Dr. Copper has an economics doctorate. Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Partners, does not. Copper is saying that the economy is booming, or is it? Jeff, you wrote an article about this, and which is very interesting. Here, I looked back, and you wrote about copper in September of 2019, and didn't again broach the subject until September of 2020. And then you wrote about it again in November and again in December. So we're going to talk about is the doctorate. That's the headline of the uh, post at Alhambra Partners. It was posted on December 30th. Uh, why the recent focus on copper, Jeff? Because if we're interested in whether or not we're heading off into an inflationary acceleration, one of the key indications that will tell us that is Dr. Copper. As you point out, it has an economics PhD, though I didn't know that it was an economics PhD. I think I, th I think I thought it had maybe a metallurgist or some more hard science PhD, but I guess suppose if, if, if graduated from an economics school, it's the same thing, right? No, but the point, really, I mean, it, you know, everybody, everybody, the, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of months that, yes, you know, governments are going to, they're in danger of doing too much. The combination of, especially in the United States, the federal government spending, just helicoptering money to everybody, along with the Federal Reserve monetizing the debt and all these other things, it's going to lead us into 1970s style inflation at best, if not, as some people say, Weimar Germany hyperinflation. And so if we're, if we're worried about those things, or if we even just want to check to see if there's any validity to any of the assumptions underlying them, then we might want to check copper as a starting point. And what you find is, especially over the last, uh, last six months, Copper actually has gone way up. So yeah, well, way now up. what? <laughs> now you're uh, you're uh, downplaying it. It's uh, of the six major base metals, which is uh, aluminum, copper, lead, nickel, tin, and zinc. Of course, copper. Uh, that cardinal metal, the ruddy metal, rose the most out of all of them. And in fact, from trough to peak, it rose seventy two percent in twenty twenty. That's a number that would make Bitcoin blush. Uh, Tesla is jealous of that sort of price appreciation. Copper, of those six metals that I mentioned, if you take a look at the average price in 2020, and you compare it to the average price in 2019, copper was the only one that rose. It, it only rose by like some 
3% on average for the full year. But yes, an absolutely vertical, almost 45 degree angle, a rise in copper, very unusual, very unusual for that metal. And so you did some research uh, and you were, you wanted to know whether or not maybe there are fundamental reasons. Gosh, who would ever think about that in a, in a commodity market? Fundamental supply and demand reasons for copper's rise. But I think you raised it in, in your article. You said, well, there, because the rise started right in March 23rd, if I remember right, that was the U-turn. So people associate that rebound with the central bank action of the United States. QE must be, right? And it's not, you know, I think another important point too is that it's not just how quickly it's risen. I mean, that's, that's the one, that's the, you know, the, the, the thing, the factor that really grabs you, but now copper is at a multi-year high. And you know, you know how that, you know, they love to say, oh, copper is the highest it's been in years. I mean, that seems like a significant increase. In fact, I think the last time copper was this high was what, 2012, 2013, somewhere mm-hmm. around in there. I mean, we're talking about a major high here, or, or uh, you know, people who believe in technical analysis, a breakout. So, you know, it turns around right when QE got going. It's at a multi, multi, multi-year high, and it's moving at a 45-degree descent. How can this not be anything other than this 1970-style inflation baseline, right? And got, Dr. Copper is telling you that, yes, central banks have finally unlocked the secret to inflation, and the federal government is going to do too much, right? And what, could, what else could it possibly be? Supply. Is there <laughs> yeah. maybe... Not I know, enough. We're, we're forgetting about, right? I mean, that's, it's really, you're forgetting about that there is, you know, copper like crude oil. There is a physical, real economy element to this stuff. It's not just money printing. It's not just potential investors seeking shelter from devalued currency. There is people who actually use this stuff in economic processes. And in fact, there are, you know, significant supply uh, issues to be, to consider as well as demand issues to consider. And on the supply side, I mean, look, when uh, um, when the entire global economy shut down earlier this year, so did copper mines. So did every, you know, other other things. You know, there was a tremendous, tremendous supply disruption in copper. And from you know, from what I gather from people who know these things, and I'm including you in this, Emil, because oh. this is kind of your world here. Um, you know. There was a, not only was there a tremendous supply disruption because at that time in March and April, no one really knew how long these supply disruptions would last. There was a scramble. I mean, a real massive scramble, a hoarding act, a hoarding uh, process, which took place because those that did have funding in place, and I'm talking about Chinese governments in particular, were able to say, you know, look, we don't know when we're going to get a copper. The copper mines are shut down around the world. We need this stuff. So we're just going to start buying anything we can get our hands on and we'll just hoard it for as long as we need to hoard it. So you have this tremendous, you have supply disruption, you have hoarding, you have stocking and hidden inventory that doesn't show up on the exchanges or anyplace else. And it's the recipe for a 45 degree ascent to a multi, 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 multi multi-year highs. It's essentially a short squeeze. That's right. So, I took a look at some uh, reports from four research teams at uh, banks, and uh, the average forecast for 2020 was that there would be a, a fall about 2.5%, 2.4% reduction 
in copper mine supply year over year. But the range, you know, we, we're still not over. We're, yeah, well, that, the data is still coming in. Yeah, go on. Right. No, I was just going to say that that sounds like it's not much, right? Two, oh, two percent. Who big deal? No, copper does. Copper supply doesn't usually fall at all. In fact, we need copper to grow at a, at a, at a substantial rate just to keep pace with demand. And so a 2% decline in supply is enormous. That's a major disruption in supply. That's right. And we don't even really know if it'll be 2.4% because not all the data's come in yet. Right. We just right. finished the year. And uh, the estimates actually range from negative 0.6% to negative 3.8%. So it could be even more than the 2.5% that, you know, on average that we're thinking about. And you're right. It's not that even copper supply you know, there's not enough of it. These mines ex to keep up with demand, you said, right? You got to keep up with demand. No, you got to keep up with supply. These mines exhaust themselves. They're not bottomless wells. And what we saw in some of these reports that we looked at was that um, for the next couple of years till about 2023, there's supposed to be a surplus because the economy's not in great shape. But starting in 2024, 2024, 2026, everyone starts uh, agreeing that we start falling into deficits, that there's simply not enough supply. And you mentioned a UBS report where by the end of the decade, it would be at an impossible uh, deficit of like 10 million tons out of, what is it, 25 and a half million tons. Yeah, an extreme, I mean, it's just a deficit so big. But, the, you know, the, that's the overriding point that when people look at the copper supply situation today, everyone realizes without significant investment in exploration and production that we're going to be in chronic deficits for a very long time. And, of course, we know that financial markets, especially commodity markets, are very much forward-looking and very much considering those kinds of situations. So we have the we have the combined short term outlook of the supply disruption and this hidden hidden inventory that's been taken up uh, this hoarding that that happened in the middle of this year, and then you have a, a longer term outlook where supply looks pretty grim, and it looks like hey these this is the the key ingredients for copper to go up regardless of what happens on the demand side or anything that has anything to do with currency or you know QE or anything like that. It's that hoarding that's so interesting and unusual this year. We mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, the number one hoarder would be China. And they have a state reserve bureau that puts aside metals, oils, whatever is uh, key to their economy, uh, just like in the United States with the, with the oil. And of course, as you would guess, it's a state secret, so no one really knows. But we could sort of work our way backwards into figuring out what the actual demand is by looking from the ground up if you count all the widgets that are made out of copper and then how much is being imported and if you know the difference between the two you might be able to guesstimate how much is being set aside for the future and or we just ballpark it right i mean that's i mean yeah. we're never going to have that's what no precise estimates we just want to have an idea of what, what is it significant or insignificant so ubs their economic bottom-up analysis suggested that China was consuming 5% more this year. But how much did they actually, what was the actual Chinese demand? Depends on who you ask, but between 8 and 16%. So the difference between the two is gigantic. Just to put that into perspective, it's 
five to 600,000 tons of copper may have been set aside for the future, maybe what we're, for reasons that we were talking about, uh, lack of investment in copper mines as inventory, and that's about two to three percent of world demand and about four percent of Chinese demand as kind of a bonus for just this year, right? So that's not, we're not saying that's sustainable activity. That's not natural. And maybe that's what's helping fuel the stock, uh, well, stock market. I'm confused. Stock market, Bitcoin, Tesla, copper, what's the difference? Yeah, no, and not only that, that as uh, copper production gets back closer to normal, which has been slow to do so far this year, we would expect those Chinese stores to go back into the to the inventory stream, which will actually maybe depress the price of the year ahead. In fact, I think that's one of the key takeaways from from all of these uh, you know commodity research uh, outlets is that they actually expect copper prices to decline next year a little bit to maybe more significant, but it's not like this is a hey, we've destroyed the dollar and copper is going to go to the moon. It's really, it's what it's, it's story this year has been mostly about the supply side and the supply squeeze in it. And it's been, hey, if you're a copper investor, it's been a great ride if you started being an investor back in March or April. <laughs> Other than that, it's been a little more mixed. And Jeff, you know, I'm in the metals industry. You gave away my secret. A lot of people assume that I'm kind of, uh, you know, living on the beach, not doing anything. But yeah, okay, I'm in the metals industry. You gave it away. And, but you did an analysis. So I'm seeing metal reports every single day. I wake up. That's what I see in my dreams, in my nightmares. Jeff, you, congratulations. You did an analysis that I never see when it comes to metals and mining. Tell us a little bit about the Bureau of Labor Statistics data that you looked at and as a proxy for what the, the mining companies believe regarding this rally right now in copper or more broadly commodities. Well, what, what would you expect if, if this was a, right, if this was a, you know, if this was an, either a combination of the vaccine working and demand getting back to normal or even better than normal quickly, or if this was currency devaluation that's going to keep copper prices astronomically high for a very long period of time, whether your preferred scenario that gets copper up maybe into the $5 per pound or even better, you know, back to where it was around 2011 at its peak, then you would expect copper miners to say, hell, we better get going here. We got to get busy. The price is the price and we're going to, we're going to take advantage of it. We got to get ramping up production. But when we look at the labor statistics, at least domestically, and I think they're, they're also the same in Europe and other places. Admittedly, those are not, you know, it's not chilly where there's coppers coming out of the ground in big parts, but, you know, more generally speaking about a commodity super cycle predicated on whichever your favorite theme is, the, the miners and, and producers domestically in the U.S. and Europe are not acting like that. They believe that's the case. In fact, uh, labor in the mining sector in the United States is down significantly. I'm not talking about just this year, but going back to what we call euro dollar number four and the peak of the uh, com the, the commodity prices. Then, I mean, logging and uh, uh, mining and logging jobs, logging mining and logging payrolls in the United States remained significantly depressed. And the, and the peak in though and and the the uh, employment sector of those employment in those sectors goes all the way back to 2014. So. If the American producers are thinking that commodity prices represent some game-changing shift toward whatever it might be that gets commodity prices way up 
attachment to, to the to the stratosphere and keeps them there. They they they're curiously not acting on it like like they believe that they need to get themselves going. They're not hiring. They're not investing. Not doing all these other things which you would expect them to do, given the fact that being in the commodity business for for years now has really really sucked. And so if you're thinking, hey, things are going to go back to being good again. You're going to jump all over that. You're going to this, you're going to strike while the iron's hot, and we're just not seeing it. And so it's more corroborating evidence that you know what's going on in commodity prices is more about the supply side of it than anything else. Which I mean, as a commodity producer, you're going to know what's going on in supply side. And if you think that's what's driving prices, then it's really not going to alter your behavior. Well, dear audience, if you enjoyed this little divergence from what we usually talk about into metals. Check out the end of the year podcast for Macro Voices with our mutual friend Eric Townsend. He was with Grant Williams and Ronnie Stoffelay, and they talked about metal, many different investments. Copper came up, gold, silver. They talked about commodities a good amount, metals especially. It was a good show. So if you're interested, check that out.